Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true, stories. I'm Rebecca, one of your hosts today. And I'm Selena, back again and ready for this episode full of entirely new authors. And I'm Brianna, also back again for this episode entitled At Fault. And I'm Karen. In this episode, we go through moments in the lives of three authors who deal with issues of culpability and who question whether or not they are to blame. This piece is by a new author to Life Out Loud, Clyde Rampersad. Clyde Rampersad was born in the Bronx and is 21 years old. He loves music like it's his child, as well as basketball, but not as much as he loves music or a great story. He's a senior at John Jay College, where he mentors in criminal justice. He used to write a lot for fun, but lost the passion until taking amazing English professors, such as Madrazo and McKibble at John Jay. Thank you, Karen. Let's take a listen to Clyde's piece entitled, Villain of 706. She tells everyone that you almost killed her. Great. Everyone's already on edge. Miss Kramer's talking about the Holocaust. She sits there quiet into herself. This is not like her. She's usually the class clown. She's dressed in black for the fourth time this week. Her eyes are low, but her glasses rest on her nose. They seem like they're going to fall off. And ah, now she's glaring in your direction again with the look of those puppies from the They Need Your Help commercials. Shania. The comedian who makes everyone laugh. You always laugh too, but you never meant it in a flirty way. And you never laughed longer or louder than anyone else. So what made her think that your laugh meant something else? You've seen her around for two years in middle school, in the hallways, during lunch, but you've never even had a whole conversation with her. Her book bag always looks as if it's too heavy for her Jack Skellington frame. She used to braid her hair, but now she keeps it natural, in an afro. She sits with the guys and makes your mama jokes during lunch. When she's not there, though, they joke that she resembles a microphone. The days that you did choose to sit with them, I mean, you never joined in, but you didn't disagree with them either. They talk about how none of them would ever date her, and they rate her 2 out of 10. You agree with them. You don't like rating girls, but you rate Shania. That's why you rarely sit at the guys' table anymore. They're always talking about girls' bodies and telling girls jokes, and you just don't fit in with that. You prefer to talk to girls about themselves and things they actually enjoy. You're not the kind of guy who thinks rating girls is funny, even at age 13. It just kind of felt disgusting. But you're not brave enough to say anything about it. So, on most days, you eat with all the girls and listen to them talk about all the guys who aren't you. The guys who do the rating. And Chania sits with all the guys, making them laugh while they talk about all the girls you're sitting with. The girls who could care less about you. Everyone laughs at Chania's jokes, but she doesn't have many friends except for her best friend, Kayla. She and Kayla are always together. They're always talking to each other during Miss Callahan's 7th period history class. They sit next to each other in every single class. Whenever you would see Kayla walking alone in the hall to get to class, Shania would run to catch up to her. They knew each other from the 6th grade back when they were in the same homeroom. Kayla didn't associate with the other girls much. Shania was the same. 
They would rather be with each other from 8 a.m. during homeroom to 2.45 when everyone walks to the bus three blocks away from the school. So even though she's in your biology class this year and you laugh at her jokes, you were really surprised to hear the gossip from Denise that Shania likes you. What? Really? You? You don't like her at all, but you're flattered. Kinda. I mean, before this, you never heard any gossip about any girl liking you. I mean, no one ever likes you. No matter what you do to try to get a girlfriend. Like when you told Rosie you liked her two months ago. She smiled and said you were the sweetest guy she ever met. Great, you thought at the time. You didn't know yet that this was code for not interested. You thought that it sounded like you were together already. She followed up her compliment with the deadliest word in the English language, though. But she went on to say you'd be perfect for any girl. Just not her. Then there was Hope, who told you she thought you were a cool person. And again, so nice. That had to mean she liked you, right? But when you asked how she felt about you, she avoided the question. So you kept asking. Only for her to eventually tell you that you're a great guy, just not her type. Ugh, didn't Rosie just tell you that you'd be perfect for any girl? Okay, okay, you thought. I'll get the next one. You knew Stephanie loved Skittles, so you buy her a pack one day before you go to school with the little money you saved from your not-so-weekly allowance. You'd given them to her during class, and she hugged you. Right there in front of everyone. A hug! She then told you that you were the sweetest guy she had ever met and then proceeded to tell you all about her boyfriend for the remainder of the class. Then there was Alendi and Gabriella and Astrid. Yeah, none of it worked out. So, it just figures that the one girl you're not interested in happens to be the girl who thinks you're sweet in the kind of way that you've been wishing and praying someone would. You've been waiting all of middle school for this, but you just don't like her. It would be great if you did, but <sighs> because you didn't want to lead her on, or maybe it's really you didn't want any of the guys to think you were into her, you started ignoring her as soon as gossip started that she liked you. You stopped laughing at her jokes, and you don't even look at her when she talks in class now. You figure she'll move on to the next guy. But what else is there to do, right? But she doesn't. And then you notice one day that Shania looks as if she's only skin and bone now. The bell rings. It's time for the animals to eat for 45 minutes, then return to class. Just a week ago, you heard her joking at the guy's lunch table about how their mothers are so fat that they'd miss the entire season of Lost if any of them walked in front of the TV. But today, she sits by herself in the upper right corner of the endless white table that no one sits at. You sit at the girls' table again because at least they like you, but just not like that. When was the last time you even spoke to Shania? Was it two weeks ago in Miss Jung's biology class, or was it when you found out that she likes you? You can't even remember when you learned she had a crush on you. You couldn't even understand any of it. You didn't think it was a big deal. <sighs> She's definitely upset, but maybe it's not even about you. You go home and log into AIM. Mail. You click the status section, and in a desperate attempt to get some girl's attention, you begin to type, Maybe one day I'll find a girl who likes me. Your friends ask if everything's okay, and you reply that everything is fine. You realize that none of the girls' attention who you were trying to get even noticed the status. But Shania notices. She writes, maybe there is some who already do. In the days that follow, everyone keeps trying to get you to give Shania a chance. And they ask, why don't you like her? You're as deep as a kiddie pool. She's great. She's just not your type. 
you say. She'd be perfect for any guy, but just not you. Shania is online. You don't even think twice, you ignore her username again. Denise is online. She tells you that you need to talk to Shania because she's having a hard time. You don't see why you should have to talk to Shania when you did nothing wrong. Why doesn't she just talk to her best friend Kayla or something? Why me? But then you learn something interesting. Denise tells you that Kayla also likes you. Kayla's actually cute. Her dark brown hair, her big dark eyes, her boyish attitude are somewhat attractive, but you never thought you'd ever have a chance. She's not the type to tell jokes, but she's still funny, and you like that. She listens to the band 303. Oh, and she likes your long hair. She also likes when you make her laugh and that you care when she's pretending to be upset to get your attention. You remember that Kayla is Shania's best friend, but whatever. If Kayla likes you, then Shania must know too, so what could it matter? You're in a bright red Toyota Matrix heading to Manhattan to pick your mother up from her job since she comes out of work early on Fridays. You're texting Kayla the whole way on your Blackberry Storm, the one with the touchscreen that clicks for some reason. Every letter has a click. It's as if the click is to emphasize that you mean what you're typing. Kayla tells you that she does like you. It's true! Finally! You're at the traffic light. You pause. You ask Kayla out. She says, yes. Yes! You can't believe that after all this time, you have finally unearthed happiness. So, you wake up earlier on Monday than usual. You brush your hair ten times more than you usually do. All the rejections have finally led to this moment. Your moment. You brush your teeth with double the amount of Colgate Max Fresh than you do any other day. This is not any other day. This is the day that you see your new girlfriend. You jump into the matrix full of life and joy, ready to see your new source of sunshine. You arrive and a childlike smile comes across your face. Your girlfriend is sitting in class and she turns as red as the matrix as soon as she sees you. You barely notice that Shania is not there. But still, you do, in fact, notice that Shania is not there. But whatever, now you don't have to worry about people trying to convince you to talk to her. Because you have a girlfriend now. But also because Shania isn't here. Miss Kramer continues to talk about Night by Ellie Wiseau. But you, you can't take your eyes off of your girlfriend. Look at her, your first girlfriend. The second girl to actually tell you that she likes you. And the first that you like back. You spend a day with her, you spend a week with her, you change your aim status to read the date that you began to date her. But then you notice that she seems distant one day soon after. What? She won't look at you for too long. And then you learn that she has plans to break up with you today? You didn't even get to kiss her for the first time. You were nervous, but you were ready to do it soon. No, now it'll be too late. You realize that you won't ever get your first kiss and you become worried. Your heart feels as if it gave up on its diet and it's been eating ice cream since then. But not a good kind, just the kind that makes you feel sick. Liana and Kimberly notice that you're upset. You tell them that Kayla has plans to dump you later. <sighs> you attend the class play with the rest of 706. As you look for Kayla, you see that Shania is still not here. The classroom is divided into two sections, which each consist of rows of chairs. 
You sit on the right side with Leanna and Kimberly. Kayla walks in and sits on the left-hand side. Kids up on a stage perform their version of some tragic Greek tale, but you're not interested. On the day you find out that you and Kayla are done, you also learn that you're the villain of 706. Denise, Hope, and all the other friends that you shared with Kayla and Shania are now against you. They say that you're an asshole for what you did to Shania. You don't understand. You learn that Shania has been cutting her wrists for weeks ever since you started to ignore her. You learn that Shania is not on some vacation or anything, but that she hasn't been in school because she's in rehab. You learn that Shania had not been eating or sleeping properly. You learn that she does not value her life anymore. And you wonder if it's all because you didn't pay any attention to her. You realize that dating her best friend was not a great idea. You go home, write a depressing status that says, Man, why is life always messing with me? You share a sad song of the day. You can't seem to understand what you did and why everyone is against you. You think about all the times that you ignored Shania and you think about all the things that you said behind her back. <sighs> Shania's back one day. She's wearing a pink shirt and a headband on. Everyone who is aware of her situation welcomes her back to school. You don't. She looks at you and you look at her. She speaks to you and you speak back. You never apologize for what you did and you never talk to her about what happened. Then, one day, you learn that Shania has transferred schools. Her parents thought it would be best if she got a change of scenery, you suppose. No one holds any real grudges towards you. Things move on like they always do, you guess. <sighs> you don't sit with the girls at lunch anymore. You become much closer to your guy friends, and you talk about girls even more now. You don't talk about them with respect anymore, even though that still feels wrong to you, but you just stop caring. Mm. Ugh. Damn, that happens. <laughs> I don't feel that. Yeah. But that's why reading something like this that you were just like so unfamiliar with is like, that's whoa, true. it's important. Mm. Thank you for joining us tonight. Mm. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Oh yeah, definitely. It's a pleasure. So, tell me about your writing process for this story. It's a lot to take in for a reader or listener. What was it like for you, the author, to look back on these memories and write them as creative nonfiction? It was, it was kind of difficult because it's not really something I always share mm -hmm. with people. It's a story that, I don't know, like, I've probably told a total of five people before this, but mm -hmm. having uh, Professor Madrazo before, I mean, but yeah, before I was kind of comfortable sharing the story with the class <laughs> that's so nice cool. so um i wrote basically i opened my computer and i just started writing because mm -hmm. it came out like a venting process actually mm -hmm. to get it all on page and um so i edited it and um had everyone look it over and give me advice and then i went back and fixed that or whatever mm -hmm. and still a lot to, to take in actually so the story starts off in a rather ominous way with the opening line. She tells everyone that you almost killed her. This, in return, foreshadows the near ending where it's revealed what happens to Shania. 
Since the story touches on serious topics such as self-harm, suicidal thoughts, and all of this stuff at a very young age, do you feel differently about these issues than you did when you were younger? What do you think now about your actions as a kid, not addressing Shania's issues to keep from feeling like you were at fault? That was a that was a pretty loaded question. <laughs> um, but um, I think back then, I kind of felt sadness, I guess, when I found out everything. I actually, like, the next grade, because this was seventh grade. Um, the next grade, eighth grade, is um, I kind of, like, had a, I guess, what people call it, emo phase. Mm. Oh. Right. And uh, I had my hair short and, like, wore black a lot and all that. So it was um, it was a lot to take in at the time. And it wasn't until I probably, I think, probably sophomore year of high school where I actually shared this with one of my best friends. And she, like, she basically kind of convinced me that it really wasn't your fault that everything happened. Like, things happen. Mm -hmm. But I still look back at it like I could have handled it way more different. Like, there was no reason to just stop talking to someone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. I think it's really cool that we get to see this version of it too, that yes. we don't just see it just only from the person who's self-harmed, right. but from somebody who was, quote-unquote, at fault for it when mm-hmm. it really wasn't. But it, it's interesting to see that story perspective from somebody who's been through that. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Um, yeah, and on a similar note, there is an interesting mix of some tragic historical illusions in the seventh grade curriculum, like the Holocaust, like Night by Eli Wiesel, um, Greek tragedy, and also the tragedies of seventh grade social dynamics, like more in the the mellow ways, such as being hurt by girls that don't like you in the way that you'd want them to, and then expressing this through your aim statuses, but also in the very serious ways that we're we're talking about, like yes. what we learned has been Shania's coping mechanisms um, with all this pressure of seventh grade. Um, so were these parallels purposeful? Well, when I was writing the story, well, venting the story, I guess, but writing it, mm-hmm. um, I didn't realize initially that's what was happening. I was, like, literally telling the story as I remember it, mm-hmm. as far as I can remember. And um, it wasn't until I think I reached, th- like, the ending, actually. I was like, this is something interesting that's happening here. Like, because right. seventh grade is, like, a part, I don't know. I mean, everyone's gone to seventh grade before. That like they focus a lot on history and that at that point, like global history really and um mm-hmm. tragedies really. So it was kind of I guess weird that parallel existed with my life being tragic at the point with all these other things that were tragic in the world in history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So like it was it was kind of ironic that those cause uh, those things are like big tragedies that happened of mm-hmm. of course. The Holocaust is really serious, but to me, that event was something really tragic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. like, I kind of like, I didn't really lose sleep, but I kind of lost sleep over it. Yeah, like, of course. Sure. I feel like that's sure. a very human response. Yeah. yeah. To, sure. Like when everyone is telling you, like, you are the cause of all of this. Like mm-hmm. a person exactly. really hurt themselves. A person mm-hmm. had to leave school exactly. um, because of that. Mm-hmm. And so when everyone's telling you, like, that is your fault, that is your fault. Mm-hmm. I mean... Yeah, like you said before, like maybe there was a way that you could deal with it better. But also you're like, how old? It's like 13? Yeah. Yeah. Like 12, 13? Yeah. It's like, who knows what to do in that situation? Exactly. All you know is someone likes you and you don't know how to act. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like yeah. it happens often. I feel yeah. like now if that were to happen, you probably wouldn't act this way, you know. Yeah. But at yeah, the same no. time, like Shania, like it's it's really upsetting. But it's it, there has to be like a 
understanding that there was something else happening at that moment mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that this wasn't her ultimate um reasoning behind it mm-hmm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. um yeah which is really upsetting uh just like <laughs> which, a note mm-hmm. i don't think i noticed it. i think i did notice it i mean um mention it like how she wore black at certain points earlier in the story. Mm-hmm. It ended with her wearing pink and with a headband mm-hmm. on. Right. Mm-hmm. Because she actually came back in like, I guess, good as far as good could be. Like she was in happy spirits at that point. So mm-hmm. it was kind of relieving to see. But the, you know, the weight was already too much to really bear. Right. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. What? I really wanted to talk. I mean, I came in kind of joking like, yo, what's good with that last line? But like, <laughs> what is good with that last line? Damn. Like, um... Yeah, like, can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, I think this this moment in my life was kind of the moment that there's probably guys out there who like listen to this and like they know what I'm talking about here. So like, there's a moment where guys associate with guys, really. You know, they yeah. right? They watch sports and then they like football <laughs> and stuff. See, like before this moment, I really wasn't that guy because mm-hmm. I grew up with two sisters and stuff. Like. Mm-hmm. I really favored that guy. Like, I like romance movies and stuff. So, (laughs) yeah, this moment was kind of, like, pivotal for me because, like, I was kind of conflicted on what to do. Which which side should I be on? I didn't think that you could be with both girls Mm -hmm. and guys at the time. I thought it was either you hang out with girls who just, you know, don't like you, but um, (laughs) or you hang out with guys who just talk about the girls that don't like them. So it was kind of, you know, that was, that was, was a hard time in my life. You know, that's what the last line was really about. Yeah. So with all that being said, do you feel like um, like is there anything else that you want to say that you would like your listeners to take away from this story? Um, I think if if there's people who have a story to share in any sort of way, they should always you know be comfortable sharing it mm-hmm. because you never know like how you'll feel about it. Like mm-hmm. I really didn't get over this until I shared this with close friends who, like, convinced me that it really wasn't your fault. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, things happen and there's nothing you could do about it. You could have done things differently, but... So I think it's important to, like, talk about... Really talk in general, actually, Mm because, you know, it gets your voice out, Mm -hmm. how you feel Mm -hmm. out, and, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, definitely, for sharing the story and sharing your thoughts on everything. Mm -hmm. We really enjoyed having you. Again, thank you for having me. It was kind of (laughs) nerve-wracking, but um, it was fun. Mm. Yeah, hopefully we'll see you again soon. Probably, yeah, if I have another story that nice. people want to hear. <laughs> this story is by another new author, Barbara. Barbara McCarthy is a published writer and junior at John Jay College living in Manhattan. She has published online and in print memoir, flash fiction, and poetry in the U.S., Canada, and Great Britain. She writes because she cannot sing, dance, or catch a ball without cowering and covering her face in fear. Even though she was not able to tie her shoelaces until age eight, she was able to figure out how to tie words together, if not for profit, at least for fun. In her writing and in real life, she likes to champion the underdog and undercat. Barbara is a shameless socialist, a retired nurse, a lover of Beethoven. She loves Beethoven so much, sometimes she even dreams of him. Thank you, Selena. Let's take a listen to Barbara's story entitled Three Hail Marys and Two Our Fathers. By the time I was 10 years old, I, as a New York City Catholic girl, had mastered the art of going to confession. Gone were the fears that burden every eight-year-old newcomer to the sacrament. Your knees no longer shook like maracas 
while you waited your turn in line outside the confessional box. You no longer feared that your brand of sin would cause the statues of the apostles to simultaneously crumble or cause Jesus to fall off his cross. At 10 years old, I finally realized the whole confession thing was a trick because no matter how big or small your sins were, you always got the same penance. Three Hail Marys and two Our Fathers. Whether it was murder, big lies, or little lies, it was all the same. At eight, you recited your penance slowly and humbly. At ten, you recited your penance with the speed of a radio disc jockey. I became a ten-year-old cynic. I wasn't alone, though. It seems the whole world had become less innocent and more cynical. Only two years earlier, when I was eight, the Beatles were wooing us with, I want to hold your hand. Now in 1966, they were darkening our hearts with a tale about a lonely dead girl named Eleanor Rigby. Our family attended the Good Shepherd Church in a Marine Park, Brooklyn neighborhood. The Good Shepherd Church was only four blocks from our home. We went to Mass every Sunday unless it was raining too hard or when snowflakes threatened to become blizzards. I guess we silently believed that just because Jesus had suffered for us, it didn't mean the McCarthys had to suffer for him by slipping and sliding on ice-encrusted sidewalks and possibly breaking our necks. By the time I was 10, though, we didn't seem to go to Mass as much as we used to. My mom and dad seemed to be grumpy all the time, or maybe that was part of it. My sister and I were always fighting. Everything seemed to be changing. In 1966, the smell of cynicism was creeping up all around us, like mold and mildew on a tenement bathtub. This was the summer of 1966. Boys grew their hair longer. Girls hemmed their skirts shorter. Mississippi burned with hatred, and young boys kept returning home in flag-draped boxes. This was the summer of 1966. It was the year I lied to an old Italian lady. It was the year I played a trick on her. It was the year I made her cry. And then I killed her. With a thick red magic marker, I cross off yesterday's date from the kitchen wall calendar. Today is August 2, 1966. And the first day of school is a miserably long 35 days away. Thinking of that long wait, I exhale a sigh that holds the weight of the world. My best friend, Debbie, is still at Hiawatha summer camp, and there's nothing to do. Debbie said she's going to take archery lessons and learn how to dive. I admit it. I'm so jealous. I have never been so bored in my life. I draw a big, fat red star on August 30th, the day Debbie will get home from camp. I wish I had a time travel machine to speed the days up. I slumped down at the kitchen table. The kitchen's red rooster clock tick-tocks loudly and reminds me of the slow passage of time. I flip through the pages of the New York Daily News and the front page headline shouts, Sniper kills 15, wounds 31, slain in 80-minute terror at Texas U. On the front page is a picture of the killer and his wife on their wedding day. They look so happy, but I guess they really weren't. The article says that the sniper was a kill-crazy ex-Marine who 
who also murdered his wife and mother. <sighs> Bored to death with murder, I pick up my mom's address book from the table and absentmindedly flip through the pages of neighbors, friends, and relatives' addresses and phone numbers. I see Mrs. Nicoletti's number. Mrs. Nicoletti is very nice, but old. I mean, really old. And she lives across the street from me. Debbie and I like when Mrs. Nicoletti talks about her daughters, Carmela and Marcella. Carmela is a beautician in the Bronx, and Marcella is a dietitian at a big hospital in Manhattan. Mrs. Nicoletti is very proud of her daughters, but we always laugh when she, with her thick Italian accent, mispronounces her daughter's jobs. She tells us, My Carmela is a beautish, and my Marcella is a dietish. She tells me and Debbie this all the time as if we've never heard her tell us a million trillion times before. We always visit Mrs. Nicoletti on Saturday, her baking day, and eat her delicious Anazette cookies and her Amaretti macaroons. One day between bites of cookies, Debbie whispers to me, I bet if she had a son, he would be a mortician, and she would call him a mortish. I laugh so hard, milk comes out of my nose. Mrs. Nicoletti is very fat, and she huffs and puffs all over the place. Her upper arms jiggle like jello, but she has a very happy and kind face. Her husband, Gustavo, died a long time ago, but she still wears all black, and she goes to Good Shepherd every day to light candles and pray for him. I can't imagine what he did so wrong to need all those prayers. She said she also prays for me and Debbie, even though Debbie is Jewish. Still flipping through the address book and afraid I'll die of boredom, I just come up with a brilliant idea and can't believe I have not thought of this before. I say aloud, prank phone calls, that's what I'll do. I get up from my chair so quickly I scrape my mom's just wax floor. Uh-oh, I think. I bet I'll hear about that. Debbie and I do prank calls all the time when she's not at summer camp. Our favorite call is when we call grocery store clerks. Alan Harry's Market, how can I help you? Hello, sir. This is Mrs. Victor von Strudelmeyer. I'm having a big fancy party tonight, and I'm wondering if you have pig's feet. Why, yes, ma'am, I certainly do. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my, you poor man. Where do you buy your shoes? Then I remember the time that almost got me in trouble. At the beginning of the summer, me and Debbie decided to play a prank on the telephone operator. I dialed O, and when the operator answered, I pretended to be a little lost girl that could not find her mother. I cried rain buckets, barely able to get my words out, and asked for her help. I said things like, help me, help me, I want my mommy. I mean, I really laid it on a thick. The operator said to wait exactly where I was, and she would call the police to find me. I cried so hard, snot was coming out of my nose. So I hung up, and Debbie and I laughed so hard, we wet our shorts. When we calmed down, we decided to do it again. I picked up the phone 
But before I could dial the O, believe it or not, the operator was still on the line and she yelled, young lady, keep this up and I will call your mother and the police and believe me, I will. What you are doing is against the law. I hung up real quick and told Debbie. We waited about five minutes and I checked the phone and the operator was still there. I hung up again and believe me, Debbie and I were so scared we listened for the sounds of police sirens coming down the block. We swore on our hearts that we would never make prank calls again. That promise only lasted about a week. I'm not thinking about the time I almost got in trouble. When I start dialing, though, I calm down and get serious because the worst thing you can do is laugh during a prank call. I dial Mrs. Nicoletti's number, Butterfield 78687. I almost give up because it rings a zillion times, but then I remember how slow Mrs. Nicoletti is because of her arthritis. I can picture her huffing and puffing as she makes her way to the phone. Hello? Hello? I hear Mrs. Nicoletti pick up. Hello, may I speak with Mrs. Gustavo Nicoletti? Yes, yes, that's a me. What's wrong? Are my girls sick? Don't worry, Mrs. Nicoletti. I'm sure they're fine. But let me tell you, this is your lucky day. You have been chosen as a contestant on our radio show. Everybody wins. All you have to do is answer one question, and you will win a fabulous prize. Today, our category is American History. Are you ready to play, Mrs. Nicoletti? Oh, my, I don't know. I don't know much about about history. Don't worry, Mrs. Nicoletti. On everybody wins. Everybody wins. Now, here's your question. You have 30 seconds to answer. Just think, Mrs. Nicoletti, you are a mere 30 seconds away from fame and fortune. Okay, here's your question. In 1492, this man discovered America. Can you name him, Mrs. Nicoletti? Yes, yes, I know that one. It's a Cristoforo Colombo. That is correct, Mrs. Nicoletti. Congratulations. Now, let me tell you what you've won. I sure hope you're sitting down because you want a brand new Maytag washer and dryer and a one-year supply of Dash detergent. Mamma mia, I do not believe. Oh, my God. Grazie, grazie, grazie. No, thank you, Mrs. Nicoletti. And thank you for playing Everybody Wins. Grazie, grazie. I fall on the floor laughing, and I wish a trillion times that Debbie was here. Debbie snorts when she laughs. That always makes us even more hysterical. I'm dying to see Mrs. Nicoletti, but I know I have to wait a bit. So I go upstairs make my bed, wash up, and put some play clothes on. I finally go out, and I see right away that Mrs. Nicoletti is in her front yard, trimming her hedges by her St. Francis of Assisi statue. She is using her giant garden shears that look like they're big enough and sharp enough to chop off the head of Godzilla. She sees me right away and waves and calls to me, Barbara Anna, Barbara Anna, hurry up, I have to tell you something. I've never seen Mrs. Nicoletti so happy. She drops the shears to the ground and hugs me so hard, her giant breasts almost strangle me. 
She tells me, come, my angel, let's go inside, and I'll tell you a big news over milk and cookies. Now, I never say no to cookies, but suddenly I didn't want any because I could feel a big rock in my stomach. Mrs. Nicoletti tells me the story about the washer and dryer, and of course I act all surprised and excited for her. While she is telling me, though, I feel the rock inside me get bigger and bigger. She tells me she does not need a new washer and dryer, so she's going to give it to her daughter Carmela. Believe it or not, she tells me again that Carmela is a beautish. It seems that Carmela's husband has lost his job again, and their washer and dryer just broke. A couple of times I have heard Mrs. Nicoletti tell my mom that Carmela's husband is a lazy bum, but of course I don't say anything. After about a half hour, I tell her I have some chores to do, so she gives me a big wet kiss on my cheek and I leave. I go home, get into bed, and hold my stomach really hard. When my mom gets home, she sees me and takes my temperature about a hundred times and brings me some chicken broth and toast. I spend the next week trying to avoid Mrs. Nicoletti. When I see her, I wave, but I run off as if I have somewhere important to go. I spend a lot of time in the park wishing I could just disappear. Then about two weeks after the prank call, I see Mrs. Nicoletti outside again, and she woohoos me over, so I know I can't avoid her this time. We go into her house, and she brings out her cookies, and then starts to cry. And she says to me, oh, Barbara, Anna, I feel like such a fool. The other day I realized the radio show never asked for my address, so how could they send me the washer and dryer? I told Carmela, and she said maybe someone had played a trick on me. The next day, she checked it out. And guess what? There are no radio shows called Everybody Wins. Mrs. Nicoletti starts to cry some more. I cry, too. I try to comfort her, and I even tell her how mean the person was who tricked her. She was so excited to give the washer and dryer to Carmela. Plus, I can see she's embarrassed. She again gives me a big wet kiss, and I go home. The rock is back, but now it's a boulder. It's finally the first day of school, and Debbie's back. No more boredom. I love my new teacher, Mr. Miller, and Debbie and I are in the same class. Mr. Miller is really funny. One day he tells us he thinks Mrs. Jackie Kennedy is ugly. All the girls in class are in shock, and we start to yell. But he begins to laugh, so we finally figure out he is joking. I feel very happy. Mrs. Nicoletti seems okay, but maybe still a little sad. The rock has not come back. Well, at least not that much. But then on September 16th, when I come home from school, I see my mom in the kitchen, and she is crying. She tells me to sit down because she has some bad news. I feel my whole body freeze. She tells me that this afternoon, Mrs. Nicoletti had a heart attack and died. I can't believe it. I start to cry too, but for a different reason. The rock is back because I know I killed Mrs. Nicoletti. I broke her heart and now she is dead. 
It seems like all the neighborhood goes to Mrs. Nicoletti's funeral. Good Shepherd is packed. You never saw so many white roses in your life. I see Mrs. Nicoletti's daughters and their husbands. I hope in heaven Mrs. Nicoletti is not mad that the lazy bum showed up. Then on Saturday, after the funeral, I make a big decision. I go to confession. The boulder is growing every day. I was afraid to tell Debbie, but I told her anyway. She is taking Hebrew classes now, and she said as soon as she learns enough Hebrew, she will pray for me. I don't think I can wait that long. In the dark confessional box, I don't tell the priest everything. I just tell him that I told someone I loved a gigantic lie that caused them great heartache. He gives me a penance of three Hail Marys and two Our Fathers. I am not shocked. I light a candle to Mrs. Nicoletti and talk to her for a little bit and tell her how truly sorry I am. Next, I light a candle for myself. I figured it couldn't hurt. Then I kneel down at the altar and say my penance slowly and humbly. On my own, I throw in six acts of contrition. When I'm done, I realize confession might be a good thing because finally the rock is gone. Amen. Oh, amen. Uh, amen indeed. <laughs> <laughs> what a piece. Wow. Thank you for coming today, Barbara. Oh, yeah, thank you so thank much you. for sharing with us. <laughs> that. Hurt our I'm a ham. <laughs> <laughs> in a good way. So we noticed that throughout your story, you write in the voice of innocence. And in addition to that, there are many moments of humor sprinkled throughout. How did you manage that balance? How was it achieved? Well, I think it's it's me. It's it's my yeah. everyday life. Um, I like to think that that's how life is. You mm-hmm. know, you have sad moments, funny moments, um, and it's important to live that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then you also have the moments that are like a little bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> like in between. And then I guess later you find out. Yeah, I'm um, good with adding like little sarcastic remarks. Even, <laughs> oh, yeah, even at my that. age now, <laughs> it's good. No, it's great. It, yeah, it showcases the piece so well. That's the way to be. <laughs> yeah, and through that, like throughout your story, you write about this rock in your stomach, as we hear at the end, um, that starts to become a boulder, as you describe it. And when you begin to realize your harmless prank ends up hurting Miss Nicoletti, and at the end of your piece, you write. I realize confession might be a good thing because finally the rock is gone. This is in contrast to the beginning of the story uh, when you realize at 10 years old that confession was a trick or a big joke because no matter the size of the sins, you always got the same punishment. Um, So do you still find the process of going to confession a joke or is that something that you still kind of, you know, have, have some tie to? Well, I haven't been to confession in at least 40 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> and Same. and I, I don't consider, I consider myself, I guess, more agnostic mm. than anything else. But I find, I mean, I spent years in therapy, so that's another way, you know, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. to go through a confession and get the guilt right. of things you did or mm-hmm. thought, mm-hmm. you know, away from your, you know, your soul. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I found that probably more therapeutic because when you're, talking to a priest you're really not getting feedback right you know you're there to be punished 
Yeah. We're in therapy. Mm-hmm. You're there to be uplifted. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. You're taught to kind of like make the lemons out of lemonade. Yeah. In regards to like a priest telling you to eat the lemon whole. Yeah, that's like, <laughs> that's that makes really sense. Sense. <laughs> that's definitely a therapist gives you some sugar. And juice <laughs> yes. You have to make it yourself. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Have, you too totally have to make it yourself. But yeah, I, I, yeah, I think it's funny that that whole thing is like, like you as a as a kid, like that's where you're. I grew up in this time, and it, you know, it's a really innocent time. It was 1966, mm-hmm. and even though I grew up in the city, it was. You know, in Brooklyn, it was most kind of like almost a suburb in Brooklyn. Mm. It was all white. Mm-hmm. Uh, had no experience really with any people of color. Mm-hmm. And um, matter of fact, there's a good story. I remember when I was about five, my um, mom had a man come over to fix an appliance, mm-hmm. and he was a black man. And as when I guess I watched him fix whatever he was fixing, and when he was leaving. I said to my mother, and I, you know how kids think they're whispering. Mm-hmm. I said to my mother, "Why does that man have chocolate lips?" Oh. <laughs> and my mother was mortified. Mm-hmm. But the man turned around and started laughing. He said, "Lady, that's the funniest thing I've heard all day." <laughs> but it was that innocence. I didn't notice really his color. Right. I just knew there was something different about right. him. Mm-hmm. So there was an innocence, and it was probably about. The last two years before innocent end, innocence ended, mm-hmm. you know, we had all those assassinations in 68 right. and mm-hmm. there were riots and the Vietnam War protests. So it became a whole different world, really, almost overnight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And At least throughout. in the public imagination. Right. Yeah. Right. It's it's like you you see that <laughs> like throughout this. It's it is very like, yeah, that innocence is very, very like present mm-hmm. for sure. And it's it's interesting because as children, we have this innocent view or outlook on life. You know, everything is fun and games. And we don't realize that sometimes there are real consequences for our actions. And um, it's it's sometimes easier to be forgiven as a kid because people are like, oh, you know, it's a kid. They didn't know better. Yeah, um, and then as you start to grow up and the more mistakes that you make and um, you're kind of your reality begins to shift because you, you start to realize that, you know, the world is flawed. People are flawed. You have flaws yourself and you kind of begin to uh, learn the process of balancing um, how to forgive others and apologizing for and learning from your mistakes. Um, so I'm wondering, growing up with religion in your life, do you think it shaped how you seek forgiveness or closure differently? I don't know. Again, I've you know moved so far away from the church, but that guilt still stays there. And I'd like to think, I mean, I if you grow up in whatever the right way is, you do know the difference between right and wrong mm-hmm. because you see it in front of you. You know, my mother was big on apolo- making us apologize and you know correcting our manners. I know uh, when we did something wrong, I mean something little, you know, usually like manners, she would ask us, were you brought up or dragged up? (laughs) 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 Yes. So that always made us think, you know, okay, you know, we have to, you know, do better. Mm -hmm. And so I guess it became natural because I did have, 
even though a lot of troubled times in my family, uh, a lot of mental illness and alcoholism, mm -hmm. you grew up with good values. And I had my grandparents always too, to um, learn from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, um, with all of this information that we've gotten from you and getting to learn you from the piece and from this beautiful interview, we want to know if there's anything that you would like the listeners to take away from your story. I guess the most important thing is find the funny in life you know mm. there's so much sadness mm -hmm. uh, if you spend all day you know watching the news and reading the newspaper how could you not you know walk out depressed mm -hmm. um i know i little I, I spend a little too much time like watching msnbc <laughs> you know i think i'm the only well i shouldn't say the only person i pay 120 month in cable to watch really one station <laughs> <laughs> but you have to look for the, the lighter part Mm -hmm. in life because there's always something funny i've had people as a nurse you know dying of cancer and the idea that they could still laugh at something mm -hmm. was amazing and i think that's what keeps us going mm -hmm. yeah for sure <laughs> that's so that's just i don't know that just really resonates thank mm -hmm. you because oh, you're welcome because this past um just like weekend's been hard and so like learning to laugh again right. is also kind of interesting. I'm a big crier too. You know, it doesn't take much. You know, even commercials. Oh yeah, you know, <laughs> I saw yeah. commercials. Well, yeah, you know, um, just mentioning cancer made me think of it. And I, it's some cancer. I think it might be the American Cancer Society. Mm -hmm. And a guy who was a real cancer patient, he says he talks about his experience, and he goes, "My name is John Smith, and I had cancer." Oh, <laughs> and even now I my I feel my throat tighten. You know the way he said I had cancer. Yeah, you know, and so I get that way too. <laughs> yeah. I, I do. Yeah. Finding things funny and finding things that just like make you just like smile a little bit is like very important. Mm -hmm. So yeah, with that. Honestly, if I think I could get away with it, I'd still do prank phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel sorry. But I know my goddaughter who is now thirty two. You know, when she was little, she heard, overheard me talking to her mother, who mm -hmm. I, I met as a teenager, you know, long after this story. And she loved hearing about the prank phone calls. And my, my goddaughter was listening. I want to make one, too. I want to make one, too. <laughs> and I guess she was about maybe seven or eight. Mm -hmm. And we explained you can't because of, you know, people can see your phone number and, right. they call and everything ID. else. And she, she you know, really... um. Uh, beg, begged me. I said, "Okay, fine. Let, let's we'll call a store." And I did the pig. <laughs> I did the pig sweet one. Oh, I called Seven no. Eleven. <laughs> oh. You have pig sweet. <laughs> and we just rolled laughing. You know? <laughs> so oh, my my, grand, my sister, my friend Kathy said, "You know, my father always said you were a bad influence, and now you're doing it to my daughter." <laughs> recently, like like reading the story made me think of something recently that I saw of prank phone calls, which is like calling in sick to places that you don't work at. Oh, <laughs> no. oh, it no. is so funny. Yeah. So. Fun. Oh, let's do it now. Oh, <laughs> oh, no. oh no, I am not a part of this. I, I, we're gonna wrap oh, up this interview specifically to go prank right. call. <laughs> so with that, thank if anyone needs so us, we'll be much. prank calling some people. You're welcome. Thank with you that, so much. Yeah, thank you so much for thank coming. you for sharing your wisdom. Thank you for sharing your story. And for making and thank us you. Yes, and for, for making us laugh. Thank you. Thank you.
This piece is by a new author to Life Out Loud. Sadie is a junior at John Jay College, majoring in English. She started out as a forensic psychology major, but Professor Madrazo's English 101 class inspired her to switch to English. Sadie is originally from China, but grew up in New York City. In her spare time, you can find Sadie rushing a Broadway show for cheap tickets or at Lincoln Center seeing a ballet on a student discount. Sadie is a voracious reader who always has her nose buried in a book. She's an aspiring writer who writes best under pressure right before a deadline. Thank you, Rebecca. Let's take a listen to Sadie's piece. July 2013. Holy shit! I'm sitting on a toilet in Costa Rica checking my emails. My mom is not tech-savvy, and she often sends me things she wants me, her 17-year-old daughter, to print, scan, but this is not that. This is... I'm cc'd, and... I quickly skim my mom's email on the words, Daughter Skies Therapist, Report of Neglect, Isaac and Grayson, ACS, Foster Care, and Court, leap out at me. Report what? What the hell is this? Why did my therapist report my mother? She's been accused of neglect? Why am I cc'd on this? Why are my younger brothers, Isaac and Grayson, in foster care? I just saw them two weeks ago. I can feel my heartbeat racing. Thump, thump, thump. Holy shit. What have I done? I need to email my therapist ASAP. Rosie, what is going on? I type. I'm in Costa Rica and I accidentally got my mom's email and what is going on? What have I done? Why are my brothers with ACS? What have I done? Please, please tell me. I will never forgive myself for separating my family like this. I wish I was home now. Just look at what I keep doing to my family. What is wrong with me? Are Isaac and Grayson okay? The next morning, Rosie replies. Hi, Sky. It would be best if we could talk about this over the phone. Is there a number where I could reach you? Could you give me a few times when you will be available to receive my call? Rosie. I'm here in Costa Rica for a three-week community service trip with other American teenagers. I've been looking forward to this trip for months, and after the hell of a year I've had, I desperately needed some rest and relaxation. A year ago, I'd been politely kicked out of a prestigious prep school called Horace Mann. I started freshman year of high school and struggled for the next two years. I went from being an A 8th grade student to a C D high school student. I was overwhelmed and out of my league. Finally, Horace Mann very nicely asked me to leave. My mother subsequently put me in therapy with Rosie. I'd always had this mental image in my head of therapy. Client lying down on a leather couch while the therapist took long notes on a legal notepad. Something like that. Therapy with Rosie wasn't like that, though. We met once a week after school at a place called the Williamson Allenson White Institute of Psychiatry and Psychology. I take one of those old-fashioned elevators with a metal gate upstairs. The room we met in was small, but comfortable, with plants growing in the window. There was no leather couch, just two comfortable armchairs facing each other. There was a notepad, but it was seldom used. My appointments with Rosie were unlike any experience I'd ever had. Here was a complete stranger who knows nothing about me. I'm like a blank slate to her. There are no preconceived notions or biases. With Rosie, I shared everything trivial and consequential. How I felt like such a failure for getting kicked out of Horace Mann. How I found myself wanting to just sleep more and more. How I kept losing interest in school and in other things I once cared about. Rosie was like my own personal cheerleader. A human diary that I could tell all my secrets to without judgment. I could tell Rosie anything, 
And because of therapist-client privilege, what was said between us would never leave the room. Or so I thought. The morning after that bathroom email session, my mother called me via my chaperone's emergency number. Last week, Rosie called to warn me. She had me reported to child services for neglect, my mom exclaimed. Sky, how could you have told her that Isaac and Grayson are left home alone? That is none of her business, and you had no right to tell her. How could you? What? I had just mentioned that in passing to Rosie. I didn't even think... What? I was in deep shit. I sat on my hotel bed clutching my phone. What the hell had I started? A few weeks before my trip to Costa Rica, I had led on to Rosie that occasionally Isaac and Grayson were left home alone. For as long as I could remember, we had been leaving my little brothers, Isaac, age 10, and Grayson, age 4, home alone. Sometimes we just leave Grayson, but not for long periods of time, just two or three hours while we went out for an event, dinner, or a show. And not every day, just every once in a while. I didn't see anything wrong with it. They were fed and usually just slept through it. Although I do remember one time when Grayson was four or five. We'd gotten home later than usual from my grandma's house. That night, Grayson had innocently asked, Mommy, what took you so long? You see... Since Grayson joined our family, he'd had to be left at home whenever we see our grandmother for the holidays. My grandma, my mom's mom, can't know that, well, that he exists. We have to carefully edit him from family pictures. Make sure she doesn't see any pictures of Grayson, my mother hissed at me as I took out my iPad. I know, don't worry. I scrolled through my photos, careful to avoid the ones with Grayson. I was going to show my grandmother some gorgeous photos I'd taken of Central Park in blooming autumn. Towering trees with vibrant leaves of red, orange, and yellow reflected in the clear water of the reservoir. A glorious autumn day. It was Thanksgiving 2016 and we were all gathered at my grandmother's house. Myself, my mother, my brother, my sister, and my aunt. Everyone except Grayson, my youngest brother. He wasn't included because, like I said... My grandmother can't know he exists. Every family has secrets, mundane ones like, Yes, my daughter got into an Ivy League college, but she wanted to stay closer to home. Or scandalous secrets like, Did you hear? Her husband has a whole other family on the other side of town. Secrets are inevitable, unless you want all of your family's dirty laundry aired out, which my family works very hard to avoid. On the surface, my family seems quite typical. Mother is a working single parent who chose to adopt three kids, me from China and my younger brothers from Russia. Our sister is biological. The picture-perfect, white, middle-class family. But dig a little deeper and you'll see the jagged cracks beneath the brittle facade. My family has made it a bit of a habit to keep other members secret from each other. When my sister and I were quite young, we met our aunt for the first time through the covert arranging by our grandparents. Our mother and aunt had been estranged since they were young adults. My sister and I grew up hearing childhood fights between the two of them from our mother. To this day, I'm not sure if my mother knew her parents conspired to have her children meet her estranged sister. I've never had the nerve to ask. And now, all these years later, my mother has continued this secret relative cycle with my brother Grayson. For our family, this is our normal. We, my mother, siblings, and I adopted Grayson in 2010. I was barely 15 and in my first semester of high school. He arrived home Christmas Eve, the most perfect blessing to our family. 
The next day, he came with us to our traditional Christmas Day dinner at our grandmother's house. But this was no happy welcome home celebration. My mother had never told my grandmother that she was adopting another child. Not when she first filed an application, not when she traveled to Russia to adopt him, and not when she finally came home with him. I still to this day have no idea why us two adopted kids are fine, but a third wasn't acceptable, but maybe it's because she thought my mom didn't make enough money, or maybe she thought she was too old for more kids. Whatever it was, he definitely would not have been accepted. So this is the Russian orphan? My grandmother asked apprehensively on the one day we brought him there. Yes, my mother replied. We're hosting him until his adoptive family can travel here and get him. Hmm. Well, make sure he doesn't go near my antique china, my grandmother replied tensely. And that was how my grandmother unknowingly met her fourth grandchild, whom she's never seen again. Grayson only remembers her as that mean old lady. We don't admonish him. My mom says that Grayson has to be a secret because of the way my grandmother treated him. She said no child of hers would be subjected to such mean treatment. With my mother keeping a sharp eye on me, I discreetly showed my grandmother the photos of Central Park that day. Of my brother Isaac laughing gleefully as he jumps into a pile of leaves, scattering a shower of vibrant red, yellow, and orange leaves all around him. A grinning selfie of me in my candy corn hat sipping a pumpkin spice latte. I have to be careful, I remind myself. Remember, Grayson was with us that day, I tell myself. Well, what a lovely set of photos, my grandmother exclaims, beaming at me. I think we have a budding photographer in our midst, she says, winking at me. I hurriedly skip past an adorable photo of Grayson, grinning as he piggybacks on me with fall leaves in our hair. Back in Costa Rica... I can't believe that this is happening. My baby brother Grayson and Isaac. So what if they were left home occasionally? So what? They'd been left at home for years and nothing ever happened. The boys did not have regular sitters aside from us. A babysitter seemed unnecessary when the boys were just fine by themselves. For my family, this was normal. We were fine. The boys were too. We never worried about the boys getting into an accident like turning the stove on. They knew better than that. I mean... We lived in a 24-hour doorman-watched, family-friendly, pre-war building on the Upper West Side. In other words, nothing dangerous would happen in our white, privileged world. And nothing ever did. Until now. How could this be something that would take Isaac and Grayson away? They weren't being abused, like getting beat up, so they were left at home a few times a year. So what? How is that neglect? We're just your run-of-the-mill, average family. We have family dinner every night. The kids have chores. I walk our dogs, Dash and Willow. We decorate our front door every Halloween. What about the yearly family Christmas card? What about the family vacations we take every spring? Our family is normal. We're not some family that lets their kids go hungry while the parent is high on drugs. That's neglect. Not leaving your kid at home in a safe building for a few hours. Though they were a little. I did realize that maybe this wasn't the best thing to do that time when Grayson accidentally locked himself out of the apartment. Thank God he had the good sense to ring our neighbor's doorbell. But still, he was only four. So, on a day I was camped in the middle of a Costa Rican rainforest, staying at an ecological center and trying to piece it all together, my mom called saying she needs my help. And I... I was willing to do anything, 
even this. Sky, I need you to call the lawyer representing Isaac and Grayson, okay? We can get them out of foster care, but I need your help. Say that you lied to Rosie about the boys being left at home. Say that you were angry and hurt and just lashing out. You were jealous that your sister was still doing well at Horace Mann, and that got you depressed. So you wanted to vent your anger. Say that you actually planned this whole situation. You wanted to punish me, so you lied to Rosie and then flew to Costa Rica. I've already told all this to my lawyer. And remember to say that you lied to Rosie about you and Faith staying home with Grayson. Say that Meme's old friend stayed with you. It's okay. They'll never check that he's dead. Tell the lawyer that you're sorry and just want to tell the truth. Just want to tell the truth. I obediently agreed and hurried to call my brother's lawyer. Hi, this is Sky, Isaac and Grayson C.'s older sister. I just want to clear all this up. The truth is that I lied about everything. Isaac and Grayson were never left home alone. Ever. I've had a very rough year ever since I had to leave my former high school. I was depressed and just wanted to lash out at my mother. So I lied to my therapist and made it all up. I wanted to hurt her. But please, I just want my brothers to come home. I never meant for any of this to happen. I'm so, so sorry. Please, I just want my brothers to come home. <sighs> then, I shook off my guilt and went hiking in a lush, gorgeous Costa Rican rainforest. Everything is going to be okay now. It was all going to be okay, right? <sighs> After complying with my mother's request, I try to focus solely on enjoying my trip. My group and I are doing meaningful work while also experiencing a rich immersion in a Costa Rican culture. We paved a trail in that rainforest. We built an open-air chapel in the graveyard of a village we stayed in. We went ziplining and water rafting. I tried to have fun. That's what my mom would want, right? I've always had a close relationship with my mom. We both love seeing Broadway musicals and the ballet together. She's always said that I have a good eye and asks my opinion on her outfits and jewelry. We do so much together. We... But I'm getting more and more worried. The boys still aren't home yet, and I haven't heard from my mom that much. I tried calling twice, but always got the answering machine. When I fly home, my mom's not at the airport waiting. She can't be, because she's in court, fighting to get my brothers home. I get a ride with one of my fellow volunteers. When I get home, my mother's just gotten back from court. I'm so happy to see her. I try to tell her about my flight, the trip. I ask her about court and the boys, and... Why does it seem like I'm the only one talking? Mom? Over the next several weeks, we barely talk. It's especially awkward on the days we come back from visiting Isaac and Grayson, who, at ten and four, were, thankfully, kept together. We get to see them unsupervised for a few hours every other day. One of those days, I remember standing outside my building, scanning the streets for the caseworker's telltale black car. My mother didn't want him coming inside and the gossiping doorman to find out. I hadn't seen my brothers in over three weeks at that point. They arrived and I brought them upstairs. My mother had planned a fun day to the village public pool. I ate the free lunch of a turkey sandwich on whole wheat bread and tried to act normal with my brothers. They seemed happy to see us, but subdued, unlike their usual playful selves. My mom seemed falsely cheerful for their benefit. I try not to picture the boys living at someone else's house, their temporary foster home. I don't know much, except they were still in Manhattan. I wonder what they do there. 
what they eat, if everyone is nice to them. I heard foster care horror stories on the news, but at least they weren't separated. <sighs> All too soon, we have to leave the pool in order to return my brothers to their caseworker. As the weeks of August go by, we still don't have the boys back. It seems like no one is telling me anything. I don't understand why. Then one day, I get a strange call. I'm lying in bed, exhausted after yet another night of tossing and turning. The house is empty, my mom is at court, and the boys are still in foster care. The phone rings. Hi, Skye. This is your mother's attorney. Could you please pick up? I sit straight up in bed, immediately suspicious. Why is my mom's lawyer calling me? I have an urgent matter to discuss with you and... The lawyer is cut off as I reluctantly pick up the phone. Hi, this is Skye. Oh, hi, Skye. I'm Nancy, your mother's attorney. Listen, your mother and I are at court and we've been talking. We need you to come down here and testify on your mother's behalf. Remember that phone call you made when you were in Costa Rica? Just say the same things to the judge, okay? I hesitate. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not really comfortable with that. It would really help your mother's case. Don't you want your brothers to come home? I'm shocked into silence. I'm sorry. I'm really not comfortable testifying in court. Goodbye. I hang up. I place the phone back on the receiver and stare up at the ceiling. Oh, God. They want me to testify in court? But I can't. Isn't lying under oath a felony or something? And what if I slip up? What if I say something I'm not supposed to? Something that mom has already denied? What if I make this whole thing worse? No, I can't get involved any further. I've already done enough. Besides, I hate lying. After that phone call, I seriously need to find out what's going on. Something isn't sitting right with me. If my mom needs me to testify in court, we are all in some seriously deep shit. But she won't talk to me. So I decide to investigate. I know my mom's email password. She was technologically challenged and for years I've been helping her with her emails. I sit down on the black leather living room couch with my mom's emails open on the computer screen. I reason that I have a right to know what's going on with ACS and my brothers. If my mom wants to keep me in the dark, I'll just have to find out for myself. Her Hotmail account opens up. I decide to search my name. I want to know what's going on. And it's odd that she and my Aunt Anne, who she's never been close to, have been having hushed private phone calls behind my mom's locked bedroom door. My mom has never locked me out of her bedroom before. I click the first one. As I read what it says, I can feel my heart begin to race and my breathing gets heavier and heavier. It was extremely unfortunate timing for me and highly suspicious timing for Skye that she was away the entire time I was going down to court. My son Isaac, my daughter Faith, and I were all immediately suspicious of her actions, her words to her therapist. It was as though she had carefully planted a bomb and then split town. Her therapist did not call it in for four days, questioning if it was indeed true. I had had sessions with Skye's therapist over the year in which Skye saw her. I am quite certain the therapist knew how involved I was in the lives of all my children. In hindsight, I do very much regret not having listened to friends who all told me to demand that Skye fly home, leave Costa Rica, and come to court. One afternoon in court, as we were leaving for the day, my boy's attorney came over to me and in a low voice commented, I think this case is about your daughter. She is way more trouble than you realize and she slowly walked away. I can still hear her voice, and time has proven her to be correct. 
well, at least now I know how my mom really feels about me. Over the next few weeks, I pretend that I haven't read my mom's words, pretend to not know that she thinks this is all my fault. I already tried to tell her that I never meant for any of this to happen. I thought that what I said to Rosie was private, that it would stay between us. But the fact that I even said anything to my therapist about the boy staying home alone shows how on some level I was uneasy about it. And why is it suddenly all my fault? My mom is the one who didn't get a sitter who made the decision to leave her young children home alone. And she's the one who's keeping her youngest son a secret from her own mother. <sighs> As my mom and I grow further apart, her and my sister Faith grow closer. My sister even eventually refuses to share a room with me. She starts sleeping on the couch, and she stops speaking to me. My mother speaks only to me when necessary. About a month later, my brothers finally come home. And that's when my mother asks me to move out. She has had it with me, she says. She wants me to move in with my grandmother. I refuse. She makes her feelings pretty clear in an email to her sister Anne, the one she's been having secret phone calls with, the one from whom she had been estranged for many years. My aunt was a willing ear to listen to my mom's venting about me. Guess she was back in, and I was out. In another email I find, my mom writes this. And your points are all well taken, and I actually agree with most of what you said, but all you said is emotional reactive stuff. I would certainly love to show Sky the door for good, but I cannot legally do that. I don't want short-term solutions. However, two things are critical. One is that I spoke at length to an attorney, and it is too long to get into. I can't get her out of here at 18. I have to support her until she's 21, and no one told me that. I can send her to a hospital, but that's short-term. She can say no to any long-term facility, even if I want her there. He said I'm in a very, very tough situation, and if I make her leave, I will most probably be sued by the state, as she at this time cannot support herself. It is a very legal situation, and you have not looked at that at all. In addition, and I know you may not like to hear this, but you are an extremely reactionary person. Almost everything you do is a reaction to something said or done. You would not be living the way you do if you made action plans. Reactive plans have put you where you are now and have been for so long. You did the same thing with Dad. I know I would not have allowed him to stay in that apartment with Mom either, but no way in hell would I have just called an ambulance and had him immediately go to a hospital. You must think big picture. Actions are big picture ideas. Reactions are small picture ideas and maybe take care of something temporarily, but most of the time are a waste. I always think big picture and where is something going. I have to get all my ducks in a row. Know all my rights down to the smallest one. Create a plan and move it into action. Wow. So getting me out of the house is big picture, long term. She continues writing. It is actually the therapist who told me to give Skye way more responsibilities in our home, both around the house and with her siblings. He said it would make her feel needed, make her feel wanted and responsible, and give her more of a sense of purpose. I can't stand therapists, but that is another story. My best hope after speaking to the lawyer is that she finish high school, go to college, and the day she walks out that door, the locks change, and that is it. She's actually not even allowed to leave here now, as high school is legally supposed to finish first. 
Then she can move out voluntarily and only because she is 18. Stinks. Off topic, let's make a plan to see Claire over Christmas, okay? Can you get her to choose a couple of dates and then run them by me and get a date the three of us can do? Glad you're not getting Sky anything. I may return what I have already purchased and get some cheap junk instead. I also changed all my passwords on everything I own. Lawyer said to do that. Each day, I am putting another duck in order. By the way, on Wednesday at 9 a.m., Grayson has a sing-along at Lincoln Center and then a Christmas party. I can't wait to go. This is the type of thing I have previously filled my days and weeks with with all my kids, and as stated above, I refuse to give Sky the power to touch that. N. I stay in the house, even though I know I'm not wanted, and just sort of watch things slide downhill. I am diagnosed with major depressive disorder, and fearful that I'll be kicked out in a few months on my 18th birthday, get caught stealing money from my family and from stores, nervous that I'll be on my own soon, and get arrested. It goes on like this for years, until I'm 21, the age that my mom can legally kick me out, and that's when she starts charging me for rent. I know it's time to go. So I do. I move out. I leave through the same doors ACS walked through the night they removed my brothers from the home. They were accompanied by the police that night. Ten-year-old Isaac had cried. Four-year-old Grayson hadn't understood what was happening. That night... My mother saw her children taken from her. My sister saw her little brothers taken from her. I never saw any of it. I was off having fun in Costa Rica. But I replay it all so often in my head that sometimes I forget that I didn't see it myself. I forget that Mom, Faith, Isaac, and Grayson were all there when it happened. But what I never forget is that, to this day, my whole family holds me responsible. Uh, this oh. story hurts. Like, it's, 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 uh, yeah. it, especially the last line. That last yeah. line hits. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Something hard. It's like you can feel the weight yeah. of, like, taking mm. in all of that. When yeah. everyone's telling you, or even when you feel like it's your fault. Like, exactly. Mm-hmm. It hits hard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, thank you for being here, Sadie. Thank you for sharing this with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for reading it. <laughs> <laughs> you did so well reading it, by the way. Yeah, no, for sure. Very, honestly, if y'all listen to this story, you know, beforehand, solid. So your story is formatted in such an interesting way you included emails that provide direct looks into the thinking behind characters other than yourself. And for those of us who read the story, there were actually screenshots of emails and pictures for us to look at um, from your mom and Costa Rica itself. Um, So what drove your choice to include these aspects? I think that when I was, when this, when I was experiencing the story myself, I had the emails, I had, I I had my experience of Costa Rica that I just come from. It's like, I kind of, I left this like 
gorgeous vacation that I was supposed to mm-hmm. have fun and I came home to this like hellhole and I think that mm-hmm. in the story when you're reading the physical paper I wanted the reader to kind of immerse themselves as much as they could into my experience so I screenshot the email so that they had the emails I had just read yeah. I put pictures of Costa Rica so they could kind of see the contrast between this like happy vacation mm-hmm. and then this mm-hmm. hellhole I come home to wow. mm-hmm. yeah yeah, I thought it was it was just like especially interesting because usually um, when we read a story, we kind of view it kind of like the way that we but it's it's mm. it's like different for everyone. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes you can read a character and if the hair isn't mentioned, we imagine like red hair or brown hair, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. We kind of apply kind of what we know and our own experiences to a story. But with this, it's like, no, understand that this is my story and this is exactly how it went down. Like, mm-hmm. this is the email. The like, yeah, mm-hmm. like the evidence. Like, yeah. this is who my mother was. It, and, yeah. And There's like no creative license for the reader. Like, yeah, exactly. I, I give it to them. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You're like, this is, I, I just really, I'm a big fan of that kind of like mm-hmm. ownership of that. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's something we haven't really seen before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even in like to our episode title and our theme at fault, like at every direction in this story, the blame is placed on you, mm-hmm. a high schooler who just misspoke. And to listeners, and I know to myself when I first read it, it came as a shock. It was like, are you serious? Like people were really placing all of this upon you. Right. And you highlighted um, having such a positive relationship with your mother and your mm-hmm. family prior mm-hmm. to this. Had there ever been any like inclination of that, any inclination that this would be her reaction above all else, like that she would immediately jump to this level of like distrust and like eventual abandonment? Mm -hmm. I think I had like unconsciously, I kind of wasn't that surprised. But on the other hand, like in in my family, like we we have a lot of secrets, Mm -hmm. like it's all very like hush hush quiet like there are certain things we're not supposed to talk about Mm -hmm. and i clearly let the cat out of the bag hit huge big time i let Mm -hmm. the lion out of the bag (laughs) um and i think that with my mother's reaction i think that to her i had just i crossed the line Mm -hmm. like i crossed the line that we are not supposed to cross and i I crossed it and in her Mm -hmm. mind i took myself out of that circle of trust Mm -hmm. and once i took myself out she saw me as out and then mm-hmm. she she really wanted me out because I clearly had proved that I couldn't be trusted because mm-hmm. I had mm-hmm. I broke the family trust. Mm-hmm. I let mm-hmm. our business out and according and and I was indirectly responsible for my brothers being taken from our home. They were they were taken and I left. And I think that in my mother's mind, like I I set that in motion. Mm-hmm. So I was the cause <laughs> and you have you have to have to like the cut the cause out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, uh, <laughs> I oh, I just get so mad. Yeah, I, I it's just like so angering to me because she didn't take into account that I don't know that you're I like know. a you're like you're, you're, you're literally a child and you, you said it yourself in the story. You didn't even know this was your level of this is it. This is normal. Mm-hmm. This is my level of normal. You said it in your piece that when you were talking to Rosie, it was Rosie, right? Yeah. Um, that. That it just came out naturally because mm-hmm. it was just it was just another you're talking tidbit. to therapist right exactly. that, that's the other thing that that's like difficult because when you're speaking 
you know to a therapist it's like the idea of you're you're in this safe space and you're sharing the things that affect you mm-hmm. so of course mm-hmm. it's going to come out naturally you know like it's something that affected you so it made me also mad that it's like you can't you know go there to to speak about these things that are on your mind and have to think about wait I can't say this or I, I have to say this like your your conversations with her aren't going to be you know scripted you're just going to speak you yeah know, what's on your mind yeah and I feel like with me opening up to Rosie and letting all of this stuff out she that's this was the first time that I'd ever been in therapy before mm-hmm. and I think I wasn't used to the dynamic mm-hmm. and I guess knowing feel well, thinking that what I said to her would stay between us would not mm-hmm. leave the room gave me the sense of like freedom mm-hmm. like I felt more like it was it was safe mm-hmm. yeah it was safe to talk to her and I, I I remember really clearly when I first started opening up to her she was she was shocked and I was kind of surprised at her shock because for me this had been normal like it had been we had been leaving my younger brothers home alone mm-hmm. and when I when I was a freshman in high school like when my mom went to go adopt my youngest brother from Russia mm-hmm. she took my other brother with her and my sister and I stayed at home by ourselves mm-hmm. and for one solid month when my mother was in Russia with both of my brothers Mm -hmm. my sister and I were home by ourselves and I had just started high school and it was really hard I remember being really hard to like fully take care of myself like laundry Mm -hmm. feed myself Mm -hmm. and start at this new school yeah like Horace Mann Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it was hard it was really really hard not the best way to start off a new school Mm -hmm. and I remember when I remember when I told Rosie that like she like looked me in the eye and said Sadie that is not normal mm-hmm. you were only 14 mm-hmm. that should not have happened to you and i remember thinking and I, I remember saying to her oh no but it was fine it was fine i'm res- i was responsible i was mm-hmm. grown up and i think and i remember at the time being a little offended that she, in my <laughs> mind she didn't think i was mature yeah. enough mm-hmm. to handle it i was yeah. like wait 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 whoa whoa because, i was fine because like i'm sure that like before your mother left she was like you can handle it etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. so it really yeah. made you believe that this is something that is almost like a gift to give someone mm-hmm. and like a like a token of adulthood mm-hmm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. like you're being left alone you're gonna do everything by yourself not taking into effect it's not like it's your f- uh, it's against the law it's, it's literally against, against the law, the law. Right. <laughs> yeah the law. no and you see the thing is uh. i am my during that 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 time, um, I accidentally let slip to my advisor at school that I was home by mm-hmm. myself, mm-hmm. and it's like uh, again with the with the slipping, yeah. I yeah. slipped to Rosie. I and mm-hmm. I remember like they they my school contacted my mother who was in Russia, and I got mm-hmm. another angry email from her like, Oof. okay, what have you done? Mm-hmm. Stick to the story. Mm-hmm. And when I when I came home, she was like pissed mm-hmm. at me. But uh, so I guess it's a uh, I have a history of slipping up on the family <laughs> secrets. Mm. But it's, it's, it's but, but every time, like, I know that in the question I worded it is that you misspoke, but it's obvious that it came from a place mm-hmm. of insecurity, of like, n- of like, n- of like, of like need. Right. Like you, you said it because it was something that was on your mind. Why right. would you mention like, uh, like you're talking to a therapist about yeah. things that mm-hmm. are bugging you yeah. like obviously you would mention or even a, a school counselor was it that you said 
yeah yeah mm-hmm. it's a school counselor you're mentioning things that are bothering you things that are stressing you yeah mm-hmm. what well what else could stress you other than your 10 year old and four year old brother staying home alone yeah. and you also for a month staying home alone with your sister it's, in a new school. Yeah. It, exactly so it's like of course you would say these things and then you're kind of taught by this person that this is wrong mm-hmm. that you shouldn't say what's uncomfortable for you because i don't know well, I was, I was taught that it was okay yeah. and mm-hmm. normal, and it was wrong to think otherwise. Yeah, exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. And not telling anyone that you were discomfort, un- uncomfortable mm-hmm. was bad otherwise, which is just like a bad way to, I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to, I am but a child. I cannot speak to anyone's parenting abilities, but I can speak to the law, <laughs> and I can speak to um, what's obvious discomfort. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's for sure. Well, in speaking of your family, if this yeah. isn't too invasive and you don't mind sharing to the Life Out Loud family, uh, do you mind if I ask where are you and your family at now? Is there any updates you don't mind sharing? Okay, sure. I think that my moving out was the first step in repairing the trust between myself and my mother Mm -hmm. and repairing our relationship. I think that with me living at home, I was like kind of too close for comfort. But Mm -hmm. I think that once I moved out and once I became like uh, financially independent and um, on my own, Mm -hmm. I think that was the first step in repairing my relationship with my mother Mm -hmm. because I wasn't she didn't see me as a burden anymore. Mm-hmm. I was kind I was my own person. Mm-hmm. And now today we have a much better relationship than we had in we have had in years. Mm-hmm. Um like we're not we're not really like a demonstrative lovey-dovey affectionate family, mm-hmm. but um I'm I'm included in family events. Mm-hmm. Um I'm in contact with my mother and the rest of my family um, all the time. Um, I live in Brooklyn now. The rest of my mom and my brother still live in Manhattan, but I frequently see them a few times a month. Um, Unfortunately, my sister and I are still estranged. We've been estranged ever since what happened in the story. So that's Mm -hmm. been almost around almost five years now. We've been estranged. uh, we only see each other on family events like Christmas or um, birthdays, holidays, mm-hmm. basically, and we kind of go out of our ways, uh, out of our way to be like formally polite, mm-hmm. like for the sake of everyone else. Yeah. yeah. But I wish, I wish that we were closer. But I don't know how to make overtures to her or. Yeah make start to make amends to her because Mm -hmm. she really wants nothing to do with me yeah but i'm grateful that i still have a loving relationship with my younger brothers Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. a much better more trusting relationship with my mother Mm. and my grandma still doesn't know about my youngest brother so that's actually wild okay can we talk uh, about that that's a little little. wow how do you hide him at christmas Mm -hmm. Is he small? We hire a babysitter <laughs> and we go to my grandma's house. Ugh. Oh, my he's God. alone on Christmas. Well, yeah. Oh, oh my God. Well, fuck is this woman? I'm sorry. <laughs> oh my God. Tell you the question. I mean, my grandma lives by herself. 
And mm-hmm. so like Christmas, like we all Christmas morning, we're all together. Santa has come. We open our presents. Mm-hmm. We have breakfast. And then um, my brother goes with his babysitter and her family. So he's not like alone at our house with a sitter. He's like with our sitter and her family. Mm -hmm. And then we go over to my grandmother's house on the Upper East Side for Christmas or Thanksgiving, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. But yeah, that's 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 the way it is. Have you ever asked your mother like, like kind of outright like, what is up man (laughs) like even though she you know the grandmother did make a comment that first time that she saw him Mm -hmm. it's been five years you know or has your little brother now that he's a little bit older asked about why can't i go see grandma etc i no um the thing is like my mother she can be very very private Mm -hmm. about certain things that are just non sequiturs with her Mm non-starters and my youngest brother and her mother not knowing about him, those are like like super, super non sequiturs. Yeah. I think that um from what I understand, it's that um my grandmother wouldn't didn't wouldn't approve of my mother having a fourth child. Mm-hmm. Um, like my grandmother is pretty traditional. Mm-hmm. Um, like she always thought that my mother being a single like single mom and not being more involved with my sister's biological father, for mm-hmm. example, like mm-hmm. That was, well, actually, I don't know for sure because my mother's never talked about it. Like, yeah. I, I actually know nothing about my sister and her conception. I mm-hmm. just know that, like, something went on with my mother and my sister's biological father. And then my sister, they had my sister, and then they had this huge, long custody battle. But I don't know anything about it because my mother mm-hmm. doesn't like to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And then with um, not telling my grandma about my youngest brother, um, I think, I guess I can only assume that she thought my grandmother wouldn't approve. And I can only assume that maybe it has something to do with the fact that my grandmother um, supports, helps my mother financially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I can, I can only assume because yeah. my mother doesn't want to talk about it. That's She's made very yeah. clear. Yeah. Yeah, and that's true. with the... With the work that we've made on our relationship, I kind of I don't want to rock the boat. No, you get what true. I mean. That's understandable. Like it's a better to just like let it be, let it go for mm-hmm. all of our sakes. Uh-huh. Right. And it's not yeah. super super important to me that I push her on it or press right. her. Mm-hmm. I think I, I'd rather just keep the peace for now. Right. Yeah, I see. Since we're knocking out a lot of the family members out, I, I'm kind of curious. Yeah. Like, in since we're getting all of them, is the um the aunt that you mentioned in the piece mm-hmm. about how your mom was, uh, kind of estranged, and then they were together again, and then they were estranged. Like, how does that how does that end? If you don't mind. Okay. Well, uh, today, um, my aunt and my mother they they have a they have a bit of a rocky relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, right now. I think they're not speaking. I mean, my aunt, she didn't come in for Easter, and she said that she might not come in for Mother's Day, mm-hmm. which is next month. And uh, I guess, like, the, in, in that one, in the second email in my piece, um, my mother said to my aunt that she's a reactionary person, mm-hmm. and my aunt is very reactionary. Mm-hmm. So I think that... Um, I don't know exactly what happened but i think my mother said something and my aunt got offended and oh. then uh she just like cut off contact although my aunt she 
she sent me a personal email to wish me a happy Easter, mm-hmm. which was which was nice. Um, but she didn't say anything to my mother, so mm-hmm. I don't know. Our family's a little messed up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> aren't 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 we? How does that go? Aren't we all? Aren't we all? Yeah, aren't all ours? That's for sure. So, Sadie, um, is there anything else that you want to touch on that you want your listeners to take away from this story? I guess um, at the time that the story happened, I carried all my entire family's accusations and guilt. I took that all on myself, Mm -hmm. my mother's guilt, um, just all of the guilt and all of the anger it was all directed at me and I think and I I took that on myself and I accepted it as my fault I yeah I, I accepted it as my fault I thought it was my fault and for a really long time that uh seriously screwed up my life mm-hmm. um I eventually had to transfer to two different schools because I wasn't going to school and I was depressed and my mother uh, was really clear that she wanted me out of the house but she couldn't legally get me out of the house so it was just like really the worst most awful part of my life and I guess what I've taken away from that experience is that things get better Um, looking back I know it wasn't my fault Mm -hmm. I know that I was still just a kid. Yeah. I was not the adult. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't fair for all of the guilt and all of the blame to be put on my shoulders. And I don't blame myself anymore. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the best place I've mm-hmm. ever been. Mm-hmm. We're so glad. I know. <laughs> so happy to be here. I'm kind of crying right now. It's just... Uh, <laughs> And I think the clearest indication that I am I am living my best life right now yes. is the evidence of this story. The <laughs> fact that I was mm-hmm. able to get it out, to share it, to feel comfortable enough to share it. Um, mm-hmm. I think that is, that's like the biggest sign that I've, I, I wouldn't say made peace, but I'm mm-hmm. at peace. Mm-hmm. I'm at awesome. peace. That's like You're the best ready. place to be. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, so happy to hear it. So validating. Yeah, sure. And thank you so much for sharing Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, no, so, so my much. pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, listeners, thank you for listening. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and I I hope you hope you all enjoyed it. Thank yeah, you. Sure. It, was, it was a piece of me in there. Yes. <laughs> so, sure. so well, that concludes our eighth episode of the season, At Fault. We are all so excited to bring you new stories in the coming months, amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear about. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and a Facebook if you want to get some behind-the-scenes action. We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and good night!